when our physical bodies are not well, when they're not at ease, we usually care for ourselves and we care for others and help the body through the healing process by offering, giving, and taking medicines and remedies and some herbal teas, maybe, like grandma's tummy mint. And in this safe, supportive, and silent container of retreat here, as we're able to, through this kind of support, really become more honest with our moment-to-moment experience and see how it is beneath the layers of the mind and the body and the heart. We see through this process that even our hearts and our minds are not always fully at ease. Even though there are times of great, open, spacious awareness, we begin to see that that too is not permanent. That comes and goes and our hearts still ache. There's this kind of heart pain. I met a person who spent a lot of time in India, an American, and he said that uh, the word, the kind of common word in uh, the Hindi language nowadays for dukkha, the translation of that is heartache or heart pain, dukkha. We've heard a lot, that word a lot, meaning suffering. So we begin to see the wounds, the pains, the hurts. They're still there, no matter how many times of open, spacious uh, experiences we had. So how do we care for ourselves when we see this? What do we do? And this practice, this uh, meditation practice, is one of the things we do. But very specifically, through this practice, what is the best remedy? What is the Buddha's tummy mint or dharma mint tea uh, that we can use? And in many different ways, and from different sides, and at different depths of our understanding and practice, I've seen that for myself and for others, uh, through experience and through reading uh, stories during the times of the Buddha, that compassion is a great healer. Compassion is a great medicine. It is said that when the Bodhisattva attained Buddhahood under the Bodhi tree, he actually considered whether to share his understanding about the path to freedom with others. And he was considering that not because that understanding is so complex, but mostly because of its subtlety. And it is said that there were some celestial beings who reminded him that there are beings in this world, but with little dust in their eyes. And so, encouraged the Buddha, inspired the Buddha to share the teachings. And it was out of this great compassion, out of the Buddha's great compassion, that he began his 40 years of teaching during that time, more than 2,500 years ago. Every time I come up here to sit and I pay my respects to the Buddha and uh, the teachers that are up here in these pictures, many of our teachers and our teachers' teachers take refuge in, and take refuge in the teachings um, and kind of pray that I can impart the teachings in the best way. I'm reminded that the Buddha handed down this uh, medicine from himself to one generation to another generation and then to us. And now here, we're here. And no matter what the teaching is about, whether it's about mindfulness or the five hindrances or right effort or, you know, current inspirations about what's happening and space and how that opens our hearts. 
the teachings from the beginning of time have all been riding on the current of compassion. And so this is the great me- uh, medicine. This is the great remedy. And so it's like every evening when we offer a Dharma talk or when we meet with you in the morning and give instructions and meet with you in the um, groups, you know, we were saying, um, this is the tea that we took, you know, and, and it works. And it's still working. And we offer this to you. But it's up to you to receive it and to take it yourselves. Only you can do that. So this evening, like all other evenings, um, we choose a subject for a Dharma talk to try to describe it from every side. You know, what can help? What's, what's uh, medicine? What can be healing to encourage and inspire you through your intellectual understanding, through your in- intuition, intuitive understanding to support your process of healing. So this evening, I'd like to talk, of course, about compassion itself. If we look, and it doesn't have to be looking so carefully, we notice how compassion is so natural for each one of us. It's kind of a primal force for us. If we bump ourselves somewhere or uh, we hurt ourselves, immediately our hand goes out to soothe the bump, to massage it you know, to kind of protect it somehow. That happens for ourselves. It happens towards loved ones quite easily, spontaneously. When someone's hurt, we respond naturally. You know, we feel the quivering of our hearts, and we automatically want to help. And so too, not all the time, but most of the time, even with those people in our lives that we have problems with, when they are in trouble, or say there's a a death in their family of a loved one, we naturally feel the quivering of our hearts towards them. No matter how hard it is between us, that compassion is still stronger. That connection, that care for another human being is still stronger than enmity. And so we see that compassion in this way, when we look carefully, or even not so carefully, it's much stronger than fear. It's much stronger than hatred. So it's really worth cultivating it, looking at it carefully. It's said that if you remove compassion from the teachings of the Buddha, you remove the heart of the teachings. So what what is compassion, really? Compassion is an aspect of metta, that unconditional love that we've been practicing every afternoon. It's a basic basic kindness that we have that can specifically open to suffering, to pain. So basically what compassion is, is when you take metta and you turn it specifically towards suffering and towards pain. Whether it's in the body, in the mind, in the heart, in ourselves, in others, whether it's at the surface or deeply, that there's this ability with the energy of compassion to open to, to come close to, and to stay with that suffering, that pain. And to know beyond the illusion of everything, and to know beyond a doubt that kindness and love are stronger than anything, that they're healing, and that if we stay with it, that it can lead to freedom. Mahatma Gandhi has always inspired me, and this is one of the things that uh, he said during his life. When I despair, I remember that all through history, the way of truth and love has always won. There have been tyrants and murderers, and for a time they can seem invincible. 
But in the end, they always fall, always. And so I've come to see that, and and I know that each one of us has seen that in one way or another, even though this world has many distractions, that we all have our own experiences of that, not just on the cushion, but in the world. If it weren't for compassion, we would not really be able to open to that noble truth of suffering. We wouldn't be able to get close to it at all. And if it weren't for suffering itself, for the ability to open to suffering, we would not be able to deepen, strengthen our capacity to love, our capacity to care, our capacity for compassion. The Dalai Lama says, um, until you understand suffering, there is still a measure of hypocrisy to your compassion. Until we understand it really deeply, experientially, not just in our heads. Recently, as I uh, spoke with you the other day, told you about I had a pilgrimage to India and the pilgrimage was to some of the holy sites. But for me, it wasn't really visiting the holy sites. I was really visiting uh, one of our teachers, who's older now, and paying some uh, respects to him, uh, because he, he was one of those that were majorly responsible for bringing the Dharma to the West. And so out of gratitude, I, I went to see him. And for many years, during his uh, writings to me and um, when I would speak with him, he would always say that he wanted to take me to these holy sites. That was one of his wishes. And another thing he would say is that he wanted to take me down the Ganges to see the dead bodies floating on the river, which was kind of, you know, not something that someone would usually <laughs> tell you, but um, <laughs> being a Dharma teacher, you know, and just opening to all aspects of life, I, 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 you know, slowly took that in. And so that was one of the things we did, too. And when I went to India, um, it was my first time in India, and even though I was born in Manila in the Philippines and I'd spent quite a bit of my life there, about maybe 10 years of my life there. Um, it's horrible in, in Manila. I mean, the suffering is really, really bad. And uh, just environmentally, it's way, way behind. But India was but about 100 times worse. And when I got off the plane, and there was this sea of suffering, and all throughout my travels, it was really like keeping my heart open in hell. It was such a practice in compassion for me, you know, to keep my heart open as I was seeing this um, extreme of the lack of sanitation, the lack of food, the sickness, the um, just not the uncleanliness there. It was an assault to my senses. It was quite... Um, horrifying some, some scenes that I had come across. There was a place that I went to in Sarnath, which is one of the two places that I visited, two of the holy sites with Manindra. The first place um, uh, that we visited was Sarnath, and this was the place that the Buddha offered uh, his first Dharma talk, which is um, the Four Noble Truths. And so before we went there, one of my girlfriends, uh, yogi friends, a companion of mine, said that she wanted to visit this woman that um, she visited every day when she was in Sarnath during the winter. She re attended a, a retreat there with Christopher Titmus, and <clears throat> she was so excited for me to meet this woman. And so I had no idea who this woman was. And one time we were coming out of the Mahabodhi temple, and she said, oh, I see the woman. Let's, let's go, go close to her. And so she was going to offer her something. So we 
went up there very quickly and um, you know there's a sea of people always and we came close to this one woman who was a beggar woman and um, her hair and her you know she was just completely disheveled she could hardly look us straight in the eye she was very very thin and hungry her her skin was like leather and her lips were white from being so chapped and her um, fingers and her toes were gnarled and just everything about her and not something used that we're used to seeing in America you know it just I could feel my heart closing down but there was something that quivering in my heart that made me want to stay open to that kind of not just the you know the the pain that she was going through but that pain in my own heart that keeps it closed down you know that that feeling that doesn't want to open when it's unpleasant and so i did that keep my heart open in order to be able to experience that reality with an open heart which is one of the ways of compassion compassion is one of the um, descriptions of compassion is experiencing reality with an open heart it's through compassion that we can allow ourselves to truly be human to open to that pain of being human and to accept it without shutting down without striking out without trying to cover it up with something more pleasant, without distracting ourselves. It allows us to have that kind of courage to be with things as they are and not just choose what we can be with because it's easy to be with. It doesn't take much to realize that there's so much pain in this world. You know, we only have to look inside and just take a few minutes to look beneath the surface of things in our own hearts. And if we're honest with ourselves, we see how much pain there really is. And so there's a lot of chaos within us and in this world. There's a lot of inequity. And how do we come to terms with that? You know, we, we do try our best to, to help and to do what we can on an outward level. But really how we come to terms with that is within, in our own hearts. And it doesn't have anything to do with logic. And it has everything to do with love, with care, keeping our hearts open. It has everything to do with courage, that energy that allows us to keep our hearts open that allows us to understand how deeply connected we are. This is um, a poem or a writing by Kabir. This love between us goes back to the first humans. True love has no beginning. It has no ending. Deeply, look deeply at this great love. It cannot be annihilated. It cannot be annihilated. As the river weaves itself to the sea, what's inside of you moves also inside of me. And this not only includes, you know, what moves inside of you, what moves inside of me, it it not only includes what's beautiful and pleasant to be with, but it also includes what's painful, what's hard to be with. This also is what deeply connects us. And it's only through love, through care, through compassion that we're able to stay open to this. When we stay open to the chaos of the world and within us, what is it asking of us, you know, when we listen carefully? Compassion asks us these things. Can we allow ourselves to feel the vulnerability of our insecurity? the vulnerability of this quickly changing world and yet not break down, not set up barriers, 
not try to control, not be broken by it, but to still feel a tenderness for ourselves and for each other. Not to touch what's happening, the chaos within us or outside of us. Compassion is asking us, can we open to this? Can we stay open? And not to touch it with the violence of pushing it away, of condemning it, or setting up barriers so that we feel separate from it. Can we hold this pain within our own hearts that we see? which is the same pain. It's not personal, we begin to see. It's quite universal, the same pain that everybody else holds in their hearts. Can we hold it in, in a way that says, it's okay, and just to be with it, rather than try to fix it or change it or cover it up or control it in any way? That's what compassion is asking us to do on the sitting cushion and what all the instructions and directions point us to. Can we hold this pain that we feel when we do feel it, like we hold a crying child in our arms, or, you know, a little newborn kitten, and not say, you know, you have to stop crying for me to hold you. But can we hold it just like it is, and, and just be present there with it. That's what the practice, that's what compassion is asking us to do, to hold this with tenderness. So can we be in this kind of relationship to it where we're not drowning in, in the suffering of it? We're not drowning in pity towards it or grief with it, nor are we pushing it away with any kind of cruelty, trying to control it. Compassion is such an important training because it teaches us to be with the reality of how things are. Manindra used to always say to us that when mindfulness is there, many beautiful qualities of mind and heart are there. And you really can't be mindful unless there's some metta, some compassion. A lot of times we would listen to one of our teachers, Upandita, and um, a lot of times when I heard him say the word metta, it was never separated from the word karuna, which is compassion. So he'd always say metta, karuna together. So. Metta, karuna, loving-kindness and compassion are always nearby when uh, true mindfulness is there because it's, it's what allows us, with, when mindfulness is there, it's what allows us to really come close to the pain of the moment and be steady with it. So this energy or this quality of mind really helps us to be with what's difficult. This is a poem by David White. He calls it self-portrait, but it's a lot about compassion to me. He says, it doesn't interest me if there is one God or many gods. I want to know despair, and I want to be able to see it in others. I want to know if you're prepared to live in this world with its harsh need to change you. I want to know if you know how to melt into that fierce heat of living, falling toward the center of your longing. I want to know if you're willing to live day by day by the consequences of love. So can we melt into that fierce heat of living? This is another question that compassion asks of us. Can we allow our hearts to open with the consequences that come with loving, with caring about how it is moment to moment in our hearts, in our bodies, and in the hearts and bodies of other beings? When we really care, can we stay open to it all? Not just what we, what's easy for us to stay open to, 
but also with what's difficult. It's this kind of courageous love that allows us to do that, to face that vulnerability that we see in ourselves and in others that's called suffering. There is um, the first noble truth of suffering, which is so inadequately uh, described and translated in the West. Usually it's described as um, life is suffering. So as someone said earlier, you know, what a way to invite you to (laughs) open (laughs) to the path of practice. But really what the Buddha was talking about in the noble truth of suffering, the first noble truth, and what it means is simply the truth of suffering, that there is this truth of suffering. And when I first came across the path of the Buddhist teachings, it was such a relief to me because somebody was actually talking about where I'm starting from and not from some far-off place that maybe you know, other people and other celestial beings and the Buddha himself and maybe Christ and other great beings have gotten to. But it's the very place where I'm starting. So it gave me a lot of hope to be able to start from that very truth, to be able to accept my life from that place. But it's very difficult because that first noble truth really challenges our habitual relationship to suffering. And for that reason, it's, it's really good too because it actually challenges it. Our habitual relationship to suffering is usually one of trying to cover it up or trying to run away from it, pushing it away. And when we learn not to do that, when we learn that we don't have to close down, we don't have to camouflage it, we don't have to strike out against it, when we really accept the truth of suffering, it's, tr- it's through this energy, this quality of compassion that allows us to do this. We relate to our lives, to the sickness that comes up, to the change that comes up, to aging and to death through these ways of running away, camouflaging, through all the distractions that we have in our lives, in our busyness, in our daydreaming, in our fantasizing. Can we really acknowledge our fear? Can we really acknowledge, you know, those blocks that when we're able to come closer to, we're able to see their more evanescent, not solid nature. It's said that suffering maintains its power because it is not investigated, because we don't really come close to it, because it's not investigated. But when we're able to come close to it, we see more deeply the nature of things, the monsters or the the demons that we thought were there, are not really so solid. They're not really the illusion that we've made them out to be. It's through compassion that allows us to come close to those demons, those monsters, those illusions that we become disillusioned, disenchanted. We're no longer caught in that dream. But we can only do this by coming closer to everything in life, everything in life, not resisting it. So when we stop resisting this truth of suffering, this is what we begin to get beyond. And that's why that noble truth of suffering is called noble because when we come close to it, when we investigate it, then it's, it's liberating. That's why it's called noble. 
compassion is one of the uh, Brahma Viharas. We've been uh, teaching you, sharing with you the, the kind of mother or main Brahma Vihara of metta or loving kindness. And compassion is another one of the Brahma Viharas. The other two are uh, sympathetic joy or altruistic joy and equanimity. And it's said that compassion is most like mindfulness or awareness or attention because it allows us to turn towards what is difficult and to open to it, to stay steady with it, and to allow the awareness or attention to sink into it. It's said that compassion actually helps to transform suffering but it doesn't transform it out there in the world so much as it transforms it in our hearts. And that's the only place that we can truly do it, in our hearts. When suffering is transformed, it doesn't mean that the pain goes away. The pain may still be there, suffering may still be there, but our relationship to it changes. It's not one of um, delusion. It's not one of pushing away. It's not one of turning away from and running after what is more pleasant or to camouflage it. It can be one of pure awareness. It can be one of compassion, these two qualities. So we may not be able to transform the world, but we may be able to transform our hearts. And I remember once an interview um, that I heard with the Dalai Lama where somebody was um, standing up after the Dalai Lama talked about what was going on, the strife and the inequity and the chaos in Tibet. And this person, this activist, stood up with a great deal of force and energy and even anger, uh, the way that the Dalai Lama described it, and said that, I want to do something about it. This, this is terrible, what's going on there. And please, I want to tell me what I can do. And uh, in, in one way or another, the Dalai Lama said and kind of embodied for him a way of handling it more differently and actually advised him really not to do anything about it, not to take any kind of action until there was some deep, deep understanding of compassion and equanimity in his own heart. It's said that true compassionate action can only come from that kind of deep, balance, that kind of deep, spacious stillness that is equanimity. And so there's a wisdom that comes when we open our hearts with care and we have this kind of wise love, which is compassion, that knows when to take action or maybe knows when it's not right to take action, when our hearts are not yet healed not yet strong enough um, to take the wisest action in the world. Sometimes uh, when we use uh, a phrase in the Brahma Viharas, we use this particular phrase, may I be free from danger. May I be free from danger. And when we talk about danger in this sense, there are the obvious dangers of the world. May I be free or protected from danger. But a lot of what that danger could represent are the dangers in our own hearts too. The danger of not seeing clearly, the danger of delusion, the danger of anger or enmity, the danger of attachment or desire that maybe the lens through which we're seeing through the world at particular times. And this is a story I want to read to you that Richard Gere wrote. It was in the Shambhala Sun. 
And this is a story of um, something that happened uh, during his time in Tibet. And it depicts uh, a very acute sensitivity to the dangers of our heart, in our hearts. So these are Richard Gere's words. The Dalai Lama told a story of being visited by a monk he had known in Tibet prior to 1959. His Holiness remembered him as quite an ordinary monk like many others in the monastery. The man recently escaped from Tibet after serving more than 20 years in prison. His crime was being a monk. Concerned, His Holiness asked him how his treatment had been in prison, and the monk replied that he had been in danger. Fearing the worst, the Dalai Lama asked if he had been tortured. Yes, he replied, but that's not what I meant. I meant I was in danger of feeling anger. His Holiness said that he had to reevaluate his opinion of the monk. He was much more developed than he had thought. And it was because of his incredible compassion for not just another person, not just his torture, but for himself, that he was able to go through this very deep transformation. No doubt the monk knew well the danger of anger. And it's interesting how when we see it in ourselves, how we can really be honest with ourselves about it. Then we can know how it is for others. And just knowing that, the boundaries really, really dissolve. And the feeling of separation is just not there. And the energy of compassion then really connects. So that in some ways our first connection is through our honesty with that suffering of anger. It's through our direct ability to touch in to that anger. There have been many times in my own life, and if you look at your own lives, it it wouldn't take too long to come up with your own memories of times when it's been really, really hard between yourself and another person, between myself and another person. Really, really, there could be some very deep anger, hostility. And just in the exchange, in that just taking in that other person's deep anger and underneath deep hurt, I touch into my own. And within that recognition, seeing that I'm no different, you know, I'm, I'm connected to this person on such a deep level in this moment through anger. And then very quickly it's transformed into a deep care and connection with that person. That kind of touching really disarms a lot. It brings down the barriers. The Dalai Lama calls it an inner disarmament when this happens. And really, isn't this the only thing we can do? I mean, don't we feel so helpless about all the um, atomic bombs that exist that could blow up this world, I don't know, 17 times over or more? And we can feel so helpless about that. And where do we start? The only place that we can do that disarmament is in our hearts. And it's through compassion that we can do it. It's said that the near enemy of compassion, and it's called the near enemy because sometimes um, when things are so near, one way of looking at it is sometimes when things are so near we don't see them so clearly, like you can't see the forest for the trees. The near enemy is pity because um, it feels too like compassion. There's another reason they call it near Pity is when we're drowning in the suffering. We're drowning in the pain. And we're pulled in. We're weighed down. We're lost in the mire of it. We're lost so much that we can't see clearly. There's no wisdom to see really how things are. And so how can we pull 
another person out of the mire if we ourselves are in there with that person. So it's really helpful to notice, you know, when we're in this place and to find some balance for ourselves. Pity lacks the energy of courage, you know, that kind of energy that keeps us more buoyant, stronger, to stay more balanced. It's said that the far enemy is cruelty. (coughs) Cruelty is one way of looking at cruelty is when we, it's so painful out there in our hearts that in some ways we strike at it. You know, how many times have, you know, when it's been so painful with another person um, that all we can do is strike out at that person. And it's a way of pushing away because it's so hard for us to hold that pain. We can't hold it in in kind of a normal uh, frame of mind and heart. So we push it away. We strike out out of cruelty. Another way that we do this is we turn away, we abandon. This is also a cruelty, not just striking out, but abandoning, you know, not, not listening, not facing ourselves or others. So two ways that cruelty can take place, by abandoning, by striking out. And all of these ways have no wisdom connected to them. There's a phrase um, that we use in the compassion practice whenever uh, we do the compassion practice. A kind of um, westernized phrase that we use is, I care about this pain, or I care about your pain. And what's important there when we take that phrase is that we're really taking the care and we're abiding in the care. Our energy is more in that... um, sense of care, we're not lost in the pain. We're not lying. When I was uh, with Manindra in Bodh Gaya, uh, you know, Bodh Gaya is a very busy place these days. Some of you have told me you've been there recently or not too long ago. And uh, I was quite surprised, you know, at how it is, it, it, it completely broke all my concepts of what the Bodhi tree was like. It's quite busy, and um, even in the, in the temple now, you know, the Buddha has these um, lights around it, like these <laughs> flashing lights. <laughs> um, so, you know, you, you really have to see through a lot. Um, so, the first day I went to sit under the Bodhi tree, and um, it was really beautiful in a way. You know, I heard all the ways that the voices of faith, all the different ways that the refuges are chanted from all these different countries, from Sri Lanka, Korea, China, Tibet, Nepal, Japan. Uh, some Burmese people were there. And um, just all the various beautiful ways, the expressions of faith, but it wasn't very quiet when I would go at 6.30 in the morning. So my companions and I decided to go at 4 o'clock in the morning when it was much quieter. And though it was hard to do, you know, we, it was, of course, worth it. You travel thousands of miles. And so we went to sit under the Bodhi tree very early in the morning. And it was one of these times when... Um, you know, I, I received a teaching on compassion that I never, it, it just came out of the blue. And it happened like this. My girlfriends and I walked in the gate of the, of the whole temple surroundings. And uh, within the, the temple surroundings, within the uh, walled-in uh, perimeter, there are many dogs, and they're wild they're stray dogs, and they're territorial. So there are dogs that when you enter, they're in the beginning part, and they're, as you go towards the Bodhi tree, there are dogs on the left side, 
of the Bodhi tree and there are dogs on the right side of the Bodhi tree. And I learned through the Burmese head monk there that the dogs are really intelligent. They go after the tourists all the time and they smell in the bags the food, you know, the bags that you're carrying, and they follow you around until they, you give them some of the food. You know, you kind of feel sorry for their scrawny bodies and you, you offer them something. Well, one of my girlfriends from Malaysia, she had been there a few times and she already kind of knew what the scene was and never opened her bag for, for the dogs. Otherwise, we'd have the whole pack on us. So we walked past the first set of dogs and then uh, we walked to one side of the temple or the Bodhi tree and there was one another set of dogs and they, that set of dogs started to catch the whiff of her food in, the, in her bag um, because she was opening the bag out and getting everything that we were going to sit on out of it. She was like the mother for all of us. And then we happened to see on the other side of the tree uh, a lady that we had met, a Nepalese Tibetan lady, and she was chanting over there. So uh, Sheila Devi. So we thought, oh, we'll go over there and, and chant with her or listen to her chant. So uh, we took everything up and we started to go to the other side. Well, the dogs followed us to the other side and they were, uh, they met up with the other dogs and they had this vicious dog fight in front of Sheila Davy, who was sitting there in just so quiet and she continued to chant so beautifully, you know, and the dogs were as close to her as the bell, this bell is to me right now. And so the, it, was, it was really vicious, and the growls, and, you know, survival, you're trying to, you know, these dogs thought they owned us and this food. And so it, it took probably about two minutes for us to realize it's the food, you know. So we quickly went to the other side, and the dogs followed us, and, um, and that was the end of that, and we sat on the other side. But during that particular sitting, I thought that, Wow, this is this is this is not right, you know. And so all these people come and do the, and couldn't we do something about these dogs? Take care of them in a different way. And um, I remember Manindra telling me that when he first came to Bodh Gaya, that that it wasn't like it is now. There, you know, there were a lot of what they call squatters around, and he he made it so that they moved away. And he took, kind of took on the karma of that. And so, um, for a while, so that it, it's now protected the way it is because of his efforts. And I thought, well, I'm going to tell Manindra about this. You know? So after the sitting and Manindra joined us, then I told him about what had happened. And we went to, directly went to the head monk. You know, Manindra is quite a, an action man. <laughs> we went to the head monk who was making his rounds and we told him. And the head monk said, um, you know, I cannot, I, I cannot take the dogs away because there are people who complain that I don't have compassion for the dogs. That the dogs need to be here too because they're getting the merit of everybody who's here. Uh, you know, doing all the prostrations and everything. But the dogs have bitten people and, you know, the bitten the caretakers here and they have rabies and all of that. And so, and I thought, wow, you know, and you're not, and, and he said, it's very complex, you know, he can't do anything about it. And so, um, so Manindra uh, looked at me and he looked at the man and he said, compassion isn't big enough. You know, so it, it was a teach. I mean, it'll take a while to sink in, but it's a teaching about, you know, we can't just think of ourselves or what's close to us. There's something about compassion which opens us to how is this going to affect the bigger picture? You know, if there is a benefit for a greater number of beings, can we sacrifice what it means to us? You know, sure, we can, or to the dogs, for example, or can we look at it from a bigger angle? And oftentimes, you know, um, 
we see things, we're compassionate for our family, for our community, you know, for our, for our culture, for our race, for, you know, and we don't think about the bigger picture. Compassion also helps us to um, find a balance. You know, when compassion is there, wisdom, true wisdom can be there. So that when we know, in terms of our practice, you know, when to push ourselves to the edge, when to have that kind of courageous, energetic compassion and passion for the truth, to push ourselves to the edge of our practice and not just continually remain in a comfort zone and also when to back off you know when we when we really need that backing off for our balance and not to push ourselves so much there was a a time when i was uh, practicing with upandita and um it was one of those times when there was this great passion and urge, spiritual urgency for the truth, for the Dharma. And there, I felt that there was this, a lot of energy, quite naturally, that was there. And up to that time, there was a certain way that I handled the practice, sitting and walking, sitting, walking, following the schedule, you know, as much as I can. And most of the time, just following the schedule, showing up for sittings and walkings, being careful about eating, being careful about too much to eat, too much, to, too much sleeping. But there was this time when this kind of courageous effort came naturally forth. And I decided that it was time to push the edge a little bit. And I had heard about these yogis that could stay up all night and that could do, you know, beings that would, wouldn't ever even lay down during their whole time of practice. So I thought, well, it's only a month. You know, I'll try. I'll do my best. I'll, I'm going to push the edge this time. So I decided not to lay down, you know, except when I was extremely tired. And I decided not to go to my bed. I mean, I'm not suggesting that you do this, but I'm just so showing you one of the edges of courageous compassion that can come. And so... I made my bed in the dormitory, and I, you know, I, and I only went in and out to pick up the chocolates that the girls put on. Um, <laughs> there were about 16 of us in the dorm. And I decided to sit in the hall all the time, and then I sat up in the evenings next to a heater that kept me warm. And I just did sitting and walking all the time, just sitting and walking. And... I, I would go back to change in the room, um, and then I would change and then come back to the hall. And then I would, um, if I was just really, really tired, I would get horizontal at when nobody was in the hall, you know, and just kind of lay down on my cushion like that for maybe 20 minutes or a half an hour and then get back up again. And what helped me go on, in a way, another form of compassion is um, that Upandita had some kind of... He always knows what's going on. He, I think he has spies. <laughs> and um, he would... I could hear his door in the kuti nearby, in the place nearby, opening and closing. And I would see him come in and look in the hall. And, you know, once in a while I'd just kind of open my eyes and see his head peek in. That, you know, that kind of very stern, but a lot of compassion that fuels that and go back in his room. And that, that really helped me to stay with it. It was a transforming time of practice for me. And another time I remember, you know, even... It was even after that, when I was at IMS practicing, and this was with Upandita also, when it was a time to back off, and I just couldn't do the same kind of practice that I did. You know, there were different conditions in my life. 
And so in compassion for myself, I knew I had to back off. And I had, I would go down and get my compassion tea, and I would bring it to my walking space. And I would have it at one end of the walking space. And then I'd, you know, I'd, I'd walk back and forth, and I always had the tea at one end. So then I would bend down and, you know, mindfully, and I'd pick up the tea and drink it mindfully, and then I'd put it down and turn around, and, and that was a way that I had compassion for myself. You know, knowing when to back off, knowing when to go forth with more energy. So it's like that with compassion. It allows us to get closer to how things are and to see through that, to see deeply into the nature of things so that it not just transforms our heart because we open with a lot more caring and love, but it transforms our heart because it really opens us to the truth of how things are changing so quickly, evanescently, that, you know, where is there any place that we can hold on to? So we keep letting go. We let go of anything being solid we let go even of a sense of self because we see that isn't solid. So we let go, let go, let go, let go, let go. And there's this great kind of understanding of um, bigness and emptiness that we live from. But we never forget that caring that we have for all of life because we also see how deeply connected we are. And it's not like it's all empty so nothing matters. It's more like it's empty, we're so deeply connected, and everything matters. Every action we take, every way we face life, taking the path towards freedom. It all matters. It's all important. I'd like to end with this. um, One of our favorite new uh, poets, or at least knowing of her poetry, Naomi Shihab Nye. And this poem is called Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go, so you know how desolate desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore and only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and to purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, It is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.